Old Testament Premium Podcast number 52, Jonah. I bring you greetings from freezing, frigid Georgia at the end of this year, 2009. Many interesting things have been happening. I've been working on some of the trips I'll be doing in the early part of 2010, for example, to Central America, New York, several trips to Florida, California, and so forth. And also, another debate is ready uh, to be released. And this is the debate I had with uh, Shmuley Botea, the second debate with Rabbi Botea uh, at, in Manhattan, and that's coming out right now, finally ready. I hope that you enjoy it. We're going to be talking about Jonah, the prophet mentioned in Second Kings 14, who prophesied in the 8th century B.C. We're all familiar with him, if for no other reason than because it's a children's story. I'd like to begin with a story of my own. You may wonder how this relates. You'll see soon enough. When I was a nine-year-old, I was invited to a friend's house. You know, often kids will have sleepovers. Well, this friend, his name was Howard, was black. And I remember my parents uh, sitting me down and telling me, that I shouldn't make comparisons, that they may not have all the things that we had. And of course, this made me feel a little bit anxious. I was just going to spend the night at his house, along with another friend, Frank, and it made me a bit anxious because I had heard lots of racial jokes growing up, not from my mother or father, but all kinds of comments, well, especially living in the South in the beginning of my life, but then even moving to the North, it's still there too. Well, the night came, I was at Howard's house, and this was incredible. His father was in construction and was rich. His house was huge. It was a mansion. Our house wasn't that small, but it was tiny in comparison. And I remember it was full of games. He had a pinball machine. He had pool table, TVs, all kinds of uh, things that made me, and lots of candy, made me want to go back. Like, oh, what a great place. Well, this was a great irony, and it shows, I think, the stupidity of prejudice. Uh, Often things are not what we think they'll be. But prejudice is far bigger than just race, as we'll see in a moment. In fact, the theme of Jonah is nationalistic prejudice. Now, that may sound very strange to you. A book about prejudice, I thought that was a book about a man who survived being in the belly of a whale or a large fish. Well, that's part of the story. It's really just incidental. The book of Jonah is about Jonah's refusal to take the message of salvation to foreigners, to Gentiles, in this case, to the Assyrians, who were enemies of Israel. Separation and prejudice can affect us in so many areas. Not just racial injustice, not just nationalism, it could be class prejudice. And really, I think that's more what the issue was with my friend Howard. Of course, the irony again, I was the one from the lower class in that case. And that's fine. We can have age prejudice, and we call that ageism. Of course, gender inequality and gender gender. Gender prejudice have been familiar for decades. Prejudice can be based on your accent or your politics 
or what sports team you prefer. Physical appearance, education, even on disability, problems that we have medically. I remember a few years ago, I was eager to visit a brother in Christ who was dying of cancer. He was just slightly younger than I was. I really wanted to go. And I got advice. I remember being told, don't go. Why should you go there? You don't need to go there. He's nobody. Who is he? Well, the brother died very soon after the the trip that I canceled where I was going to see him. And, of course, I was very sad. To God, everyone is somebody. Everybody is. We are all God's children in at least one sense. As Paul said in Athens, we are his offspring. That doesn't mean we're saved. But every human being is a child of God, at least potentially in a saved relationship. Jonah is not a story about someone surviving in the belly of a whale. It's a story about how God views his offspring, all of his offspring. Right now, would you please take a moment out to read Jonah? The four chapters are short. You'll probably finish it up in no more than five minutes. If you've read Jonah recently, don't worry about it. But if you haven't, I hope you will look over the text again because you're likely to hear some things that may strike you as a bit odd. I want you to be sure that I'm teaching God's Word correctly. Okay, now we're going to go through the chapters, and I'll be referring this time, not reading. Chapter 1, Jonah is told to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is a major city of the Assyrians, the Assyrians who some Old Testament scholars call the Nazis of the Old Testament. I think because of the brutality, the torture of enemies, uh, just the things that they did were unthinkable. And I've seen, you know, this has been recorded in relief, in in artwork. They were some scary people. They were probably a, a bit scarier just after the time of Jonah, but they were a formidable enemy, and they were certainly foreigners. If you're a Christian, who's your enemy? Who are our enemies? Well, Ephesians 6 says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We shouldn't have enemies. We can win enemies over by love. We overcome evil with good. The truth is, Jonah didn't want to preach. Sometimes Bible teachers say he was afraid. He knew the way the Assyrians treated their enemies, so he got on that ship and tried to go in the opposite direction. Well, I think there's some truth. He didn't want to preach. But I don't think it's because he was afraid. At least, not afraid for his life. Others will say, it's really a book about evangelism. Jonah was told to go and spread the word, and he wouldn't do it. And Well, I think that's a bit closer. It is a book about evangelism, about the importance of sharing the good news with everybody. But the deeper point of Jonah is not evangelism, it's prejudice. You see, the real problem was he didn't want the Assyrians to join the people of God. And what we see throughout chapter 1, you've noticed now, who is acting with more integrity? Jonah is the one who's 
being a bit deceitful. Oh, he told them, he told the sailors that he worshipped the God who created the heavens and the earth. But he goes to sleep. Finally, he comes clean and tells them that this storm is happening because of me. The sailors are offering sacrifices. They are really unwilling to do what Jonah says, which was to throw him overboard. And so, here we have the pagan sailors acting with more integrity than Jonah. Jonah would rather die than preach to Nineveh. That's the truth. What does he say at the end? He knows the storm has come. He knows that God is opposing him. And he says, throw me overboard. Don't think that he was expecting to be rescued. He was expecting to drown. And he would rather die than preach to Nineveh. If you want to know where modern day Nineveh is, Nineveh is in Iraq, in the Middle East. Well, in chapter 2, he's rescued by this large fish. And then he comes to his senses and he prays, still inside the fish. And it's interesting because he makes that comment in chapter 2, verse 8, that those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And he understands the idolatry of these sailors who've just thrown him overboard. He understands the false religion of the Assyrians to whom now he is prepared to go. He's willing to receive grace. Look at this. Jonah is very willing. He's happy that he was rescued by this submarine limousine, that that God intervened and did something. But his struggle is to see God show grace to others. Then in chapter 3, Jonah is told to go to Nineveh. Of course, the message is identical. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach. And the message is simply, repent. Forty days more, and Nineveh will be destroyed. Well, the response was fantastic. From the king all the way down to the commoner. They even put sackcloth on the animals to show that repentance here is for everybody. We're all involved in this. How much did these Ninevites know about the law, about the Torah, about the book of Leviticus? How much did they know about theology before God saved them? Well, it seems very little. They were told that they needed to repent from their sin. They needed to turn to God. And and they were willing to do that. They didn't have the religious pedigree of the Jews. They didn't understand the intricacies of theology, the things that centuries later the rabbis would argue about and write, commit to writing. But they did repent. Now we know that God made it a bit easier for them to repent because the 8th century in Assyria was a time of earthquakes, eclipses, famines, even a move towards monotheism, the worship of one God. And so when Jonah stumbles onto the scene, the message they were hearing may well not have been as new as we think. They may have already been softened up. And God is merciful. Jonah delivers the message, and God changes the plan. In Jeremiah 18, we read that if God announces destruction, but then people repent, then he'll change, he'll relent, he'll back off of it. I'm not saying that we can avert the judgment day, but because ultimately most people will not repent, but locally with individuals and sometimes groups, 
there is repentance. And God is merciful. So in chapter 3, you'd think it was a great victory. Surely this is exactly what the prophet dreamt of. Or perhaps even was afraid to dream of. I mean, who would have thought the whole city would repent? But for Jonah, this was not a victory. This was defeat. In fact, it was worse than death. Because in chapter 4, Jonah goes outside the city to the east. And he sits down. And he's waiting to see what will happen. He's told them that they would be destroyed. He spent some days preaching the message. It's quite clear by this time that Jonah wants the people to be destroyed. And he complains to God. Didn't I tell you? Isn't this what I was afraid of? That, that, that you are a God who shows compassion, who forgives Truly, this is God's nature. In fact, it's part of God's name in Exodus 34, 6, that he's slow to anger and he's, of course, he he holds us accountable for sin, but he's a God of forgiveness and compassion, and that bothers Jonah. Interesting. The sun is beating down on his head, and Jonah feels like dying. His personal comfort is so important to him, much more than the Ninevites' souls, God causes a plant to grow up and give Jonah some shade. Yet when the plant withers, Jonah is very upset. He's more bothered by the withering of the plant than he is by the thought of the destruction of Nineveh. How could he be so self-focused and insular? Really, it's childishness. We see a similar attitude in the immature disciples of Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, I'm referring to the passage where the Samaritans will not welcome Jesus and his party because they're en route to Jerusalem. James and John say, shall we call down fire from heaven? Basically says, let's just nuke them. Well, is that an immature attitude? Jesus certainly rebuked them on the spot. And the New Testament consistently tells us to use good to overcome evil. How about us? Have you ever had the thought that certain nations, certain peoples, maybe it's the Muslims, should just be nuked? I hear people who claim to be Christians saying, really, we should just bomb those people back to the Stone Age. An unthinkable attitude, especially because Jesus has already rebuked it. But it was Jonah's attitude. He didn't want them, those outsiders, to experience salvation. And so by the time we get to chapter 4, verse 9, we see that Jonah has remained unchanged. He hasn't changed. The only thing that's changed since chapter 1 is that he went to Nineveh and preached. But the lack of love for Israel's national enemies, who God does not look at that way, that lack of love has not changed. Jonah is still full of himself, and hatred for the other. Again, what hypocrisy. He's willing to receive grace for himself, and he's the one who's not repenting. He never gets it. Even at the end of Jonah 4, he still doesn't get it. God God is concerned about the city of 120,000 people who are clueless, who don't know what direction they're going in. God's concerned. Jonah isn't concerned. 
He'd rather die than share the good news with them. So he's willing to receive grace for himself even though he hasn't repented. But he does not want them to receive grace and they have repented, responding to God's word. I used to teach a Bible discussion from the book of Jonah. Chapter 1, Jonah's running away from God. Chapter 2, he's turning towards God. You know, God gets his attention, he prays. Then chapter 3, he's walking with God. Now he's doing the right thing and preaching. But in chapter 4, he's running ahead of God. He's going too far. You know, I'd have to back off on that, although it's a very clever Bible discussion, a very clever lesson. Because the truth is that Jonah never really changed his mind. When it comes to the theological problem, and this was, it's not just Jonah, this is the problem that Israel consistently had, as most of the prophets make clear. Jonah never overcame that prejudice. His heart did not change. In chapter 1, 2, 3, or 4, it's the same heart all the way through. One commentator I studied put it very strongly. It wasn't that Jonah couldn't stand the Ninevites. Jonah couldn't stand God. What that means is, Jonah may have thought, those people, I have a problem with them. But really, he had a problem with God. He had a problem with God's compassionate nature, God's forgiveness. And he was not willing to be as gracious as God was. Well, why is this book in the Bible? It's not just a miracle. The man who survives three days in a fish... I think it's there because we need it. It's there because it has a very important theme that we need to resist prejudice of all forms because even Christians can get sucked up into worldliness, nationalism, and prejudice. Jonah says, I have a right to feel this way in chapter 4. Christians say, I have a right to feel this way. What those people did to our country, what those people did to my family, And now it's clear I'm not only referring to the United States, I'm referring to many countries. And God says, no, we don't have a right. We don't have a right to be less gracious than God himself. This lack of grace on our part often shows up in a failure to pray for our enemies, to pray for those who hurt us or slander us at work. Maybe in your extended family you have issues with some people. Maybe in the neighborhood. We don't pray for our enemies. It's very unusual. It's almost unthinkable to hear in a Christian church a prayer for a nation who's at war with the the nation where the Christians are. And that just shows how far we are from the Spirit of Christ. We're called to oppose prejudice and separation, and this is not easy. But we cannot use evil to overcome evil. It doesn't work. And there are many passages that tell us that we are called to suffer. Of course, the answers are in Christ. They're in his teaching, his example, and his suffering. That's the way to overcome evil. That's the way to overcome severe prejudice. That's the way to forgive. I've I've preached a couple of times in Colombia, which for many is known for its drug trade. But I've met former drug dealers and the government forces and the police who oppose them, who wage war on them, each having become Christians and now brothers in arms, not in a physical sense, but comrades in the cause of Christ. I've seen incredible spirits of resilience 
in nations like Cambodia, uh, Uganda, Liberia, Sierra Leone, where there's been not only unspeakable atrocity, but genocide. People are able to forgive. And I've seen people overcome prejudice, ageism, gender bias, classism, and so forth. There's so many applications. Again, politics, physical appearance, education, nationality. How about this one, even religion? I commented earlier that the Assyrians knew very little theology. At least, I think that's a a fair deduction. If their primary education in the way of the Lord was Jonah's message, all they heard was, well, God is serious about sin and you better repent. Destruction's on the way. So, it seems that they lack a complete understanding of the true God. Now, that's different from completely lacking any understanding of God. But they lack complete understanding of God. Can we be that way? Can we be like Jonah? I think so. We'll say, well, that guy, he's in the wrong denomination. Well, she doesn't understand fully Doctrine X. She doesn't really understand everything about Doctrine Y. That group, they don't do it the way we do it. They have a different style, a different approach. They have different traditions. And we can become insular even in our faith, even in our church family, acting as though we're the only ones with a stake on the truth, a claim to God's word. I really do hope that if you haven't heard it, you'll listen to the seminar we held in 09 on prejudice and separation. And it wasn't just on racism and the black-white problems of the U.S. It was on political division. It was on historical uh, prejudice in the church. And really, all over the world, there are multiple prejudices in each locale, in each nation, all kinds. I do hope you'll listen to that seminar. It could be eye-opening. Well, what do we learn about God? If we don't learn something about God, then theologically, the podcast has not really helped us. Three things I would like to emphasize, three things I learn about God as I study Jonah. And every time I read it, that nail gets driven deeper and deeper into that plank. Number one, the people of God tend to be insular, whereas God is open, expansive. I'm not denying that that there are a, a judgment day and a black and white and a right and wrong. That's not the point. But the people of God have a tendency to be exclusive, while the Lord surprises us by being so inclusive. Jesus' inclusivity was a scandal in his own day, the way he reached out to those that decent people would avoid, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. It's really no different today. To put it a different way, God is love. He's not partial. With him, there's no prejudice or favoritism. But we don't always get it. We don't always understand that God is expansive and inclusive. So, second, God sometimes goes to extremes to get our attention. Just look at the way God interacts with Jonah in this short book. Because we don't understand, point one, that God is not prejudiced. Sometimes, God has to go to great extremes, point two, to get our attention. And then we have the good news. Although for Jonah it wasn't good news, 
for you and me, it should be, point three, when man repents, God relents. When people turn to the Lord in faith, they find a God with a large heart, open arms, and a willingness to forgive. God is expansive and inclusive. God will sometimes go to extremes to get our attention. Certainly he's done that to get my attention. And when man repents, God relents. This is the final lesson in the 2009 series, which contains 52 Old Testament character studies. The 2010 series is on hot and current issues like stem cell research, marijuana, UFOs and aliens, is hell forever, euthanasia, terrorism, immigration, capital punishment, warfare, birth control, the rapture, the tribulation, homosexuality, many other issues. In fact, 50 podcasts in the 2010 series. Hope you're getting a lot out of them, and thank you for listening.